Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our scripture reading this morning is from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. The parable of the prodigal and his brother. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region, and there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of our Lord. Just a reminder that after the sermon, we'll have a time of silence uh, to just continue to listen for God's word. But right now, let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. 
God, thank you uh, for the gift of your word and for the privilege of gathering under it. We pray that you would help us to hear it well uh, so that we might know you better and make you better known in this world. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I, I'm, uh, I'm reading a really great book right now. It's, uh, it's taking me a while to read, partly because it, on just about every page, there seems to be a quotation that I have to kind of stop and, and think over and, and, and pause and kind of sit in. And, and I know that like, not everybody reads for pleasure, so, but maybe you've had a similar kind of experience with, with something else, maybe music or food or carpentry, I don't know, uh, where you just can't wait to kind of get back in it and see what's going to happen next. And it, it, it isn't the Bible, though I could have set it up that way too. But this, this book is called How to Inhabit Time, Understanding the Past, Facing the Future, Living Faithfully Now by a guy named James K.A. Smith. And it's just a gem. It is, it's a little heady, perhaps, but it's really good. And one quote that, uh, um, in particular, has been kind of rattling around my brain and my heart uh, this week says this. He says, sometimes the most creative act of remembering is to ruin the illusions we've learned to live with. Sometimes the most creative act of remembering is to ruin the illusions we've learned to live with. <laughs> it's pretty good. And it, it seems like to me like something that Christians should really be getting after. You know, we should be eager to pull apart our illusions because an illusion is something that uh, hinders us from seeing things as they really are. It's a trick played to make us believe something is true that isn't. And if we're following the one who is the way and the truth and the life, uh, we want to be and we need to be unhampered by the things that cloud and block and distort our vision of how things really are. And not just how they seem to be, but how they really are. Now, last week, we uh, looked at the parable of the lost sheep, which is the first in this series of uh, three parables told to a mixed group of folks. On, on the one hand, you've got uh, people described as the tax collectors and sinners. This is the, a nice broad strokes way of describing the ne'er-do-wells and the down-and-outs, you know, the, the kinds of folks who make bad decisions for a living. And on the other side of things, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the ones who make the right decisions, who do all the right things, who have a handle on life. They are the professionally righteous. You know, someone once described a particularly upright preacher as a man who in his long life never committed a pleasure. And I think that's these guys by the sound of it. And Luke tells us that these two groups of people had very different responses to Jesus. We're told that all of the tax collectors and sinners were coming close to listen to them. Not some of them, but every last one of them. <laughs> People who were actively making a mess of their lives couldn't get enough of Jesus. He's just magnetic to them. They, they wanted to be near him, wanted to hear him, to have him at their parties. And for their part, we're told that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled about it. Not so much... Uh, that folks wanted to be near Jesus, but that Jesus wanted to be near them. He, he went to their parties when they invited him. And so they grumbled, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now to come back to the, the Jamie Smith quote, I, I think the, those two responses are pretty familiar and consistent responses to having our illusions ruined. <laughs> 
know, on the one hand, we might be joyful and excited to see things in a new way, but on the other, we might be dismissive and grumbling. And whether we find ourselves in league with the, the sinners or the scribes will affect how we respond to the truth that Jesus drops among us. And, of course, I think we're liable to find ourselves on either side of that line at any given time. Sometimes both in the same day, every once in a while, both in the same conversation. I mean, we're all scribe, we're all sinner. And there are things that I'm eager to see clearly and things I would rather leave in the shadows of illusion. I think before we go any further, it's worth uh, knowing or remembering uh, what a parable is, what parable means. These are stories and images that Jesus uses to teach us about who and how God is and who we are in light of that and to shine a light on how things seem to be so that we can see how they really are. Parable is this Greek compound word that means to, to set aside or to toss alongside. So Jesus puts these stories uh, and images alongside life as we know it so that we can see life more clearly. Or importantly, so that we can see God as God is most cl more clearly and live our lives in the wake of that. So if one of the most creative acts of remembering is to ruin our illusions, I think it's easy to see how parables are in a way a creative act of remembering or a creative act of reminding us, perhaps a creative way of seeing clearly through the fog of illusion for the first time, <laughs> seeing how things really are in the company of the God who made and so loves this world. And the parable of the prodigal and his brother, I think, is one of the most creative acts of illusion ruining that we've got. And, and it invites our creativity too, right? Uh, this isn't just about Jesus' creativity. Parables are living words. They're, they're not static or stagnant. They invite us in and demand something of us. I mean, for instance, this parable requires us to imagine the ending. Is the older brother going to go in or not? Will he join the party or will he stay outside sulking? In turn, I think when we try to figure out that ending, we're supposed to ask ourselves whether we're standing outside a party that God is throwing and inviting us into which would be different for, for all of us, right? I'm not sure there's a kind of pure, objective meaning that we can observe from a safe distance when it comes to parables. They, we have to get into the story to join in the creativity. So I want to encourage you to do that this week. Okay, chew over this passage, pray with it. Listen for what Jesus wants to speak into your life. Right? What, what happens when you put this parable next to your life? Not some kind of generalized imaginary life, but, but your life. That's your homework, should you choose to accept it. <laughs> but for, for this time, I'm going to have to be a little more general because we're in this together, and that's my segue uh, into one of the truths of this, the uh, truth at the foundation of this parable. And I think one of the illusions that it ruins <laughs> is that we are disconnected, autonomous individuals. As Jesus holds this parable along Alongside my life, alongside the culture that surrounds us, that, that's what's coming up for me this time around. You know, both brothers in this story are essentially self-centered, albeit in different ways. You know, the younger brother em embodies the illusion that everything we have is for ourselves. Right? He wants what his, he wants, he wants what his, he wants what is his, <laughs> uh, to do with it as he wants, without the inconvenience of having to consider what that means for others. Now, now, my mom uh, always says that she'd rather give us 
uh, the things we need now than wait until she's gone. You know, she wants us to enjoy the fruits uh, of the gift uh, and to watch us do it. And I think that's not uncommon these days, so it might be, might be easy to skip over the son's request to get what's coming to him before the old man is gone. But he's effectively telling his dad to drop dead. <laughs> now, when Jesus first told this parable, in the time and place that he told it in, which had very particular expectations about honoring parents, there wouldn't be anyone in this crowd who didn't think that this little punk shouldn't be run out of the house. I mean, even the tax collectors and sinners would have been scandalized. Even they know this is not how you're supposed to talk to your daddy. But this is a strange father. And he gives the kid what he asks for. And the rest is history, right? Buddy heads off into the world full of wildly misplaced self-confidence, chasing after whatever and whomever uh, satisfies him in the moment without any obligation or commitment. He won't be burdened by anyone or for anyone. He's going to live for himself, which is exactly what he gets in the end. <laughs> himself. Which turns out not to be everything he imagined it would be. He's alone, starving, hopeless. You know, to underline the point, this presumably Jewish kid ends up feeding pigs. <laughs> It'd be hard to get any lower. We might not be quite as self-indulgent, but don't we know this image to be true? I mean, most of us have experienced something like this. If, if nothing else, we're surrounded by a culture that encourage us to, encourages us to look out for number one, to grab all that we can. Don't let anyone else influence your decisions, life goal, dreams, or lifestyle. That we are masters of our own destiny, and we, the only mistake we can make is letting someone else get in our way. Don't we hear that all the time? And it's absolute nonsense from top to bottom. <laughs> it's a complete illusion. And I think we know that in our bones that it's a lie. And, like, and what looks like freedom turns out to be a pigsty. What we're told is a banquet. You can have anything you want. Leaves us empty and starving. Because we're not made for ourselves. We're made in, for, and from community. Right? We, we, we're made to share in abundance, not to hoard it. We're, we're made to delight in others, not run from them. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I'll give you everything you ever wanted. He says, come to me and give up everything for the sake of my kingdom. Give up everything to love God and neighbor. And then you'll get more than you can ask or imagine. You know, separated from his family, free of obligation, out of the view of his community, the son is not free, he's just alone. And we're not made to be alone. And the father knows it, so he spends every day watching, hoping his kid will figure it out and come home. And mercifully, he does. Mercifully, the, the story doesn't end with him drooling over pig slop. I mean, the parable would have been true if it ended there. Maybe it would make more sense. <laughs> but thank God it doesn't. The son realizes he's messed up. He says he came to himself, which I think is coming to his true self. Right? Not living for himself, but coming to his true self. Knowing he's made for more than this. <laughs> he's still going to try and figure it out on his own. He comes up with a plan. He goes back to the family farm. He's got a plan. And here we get my favorite part of the parable. Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and he knew it was him, he would know that walk anywhere. And he ran to him before the boy can get a word out and mumble his plan. His dad is tackling him in a bear hug, giving orders to fire up the barbecue, get a ring and a robe and a fresh pair of shoes. My boy needs to be dressed for his party. I mean, golly, that's good. The father refuses to be untethered from his son. And Jesus says that the, the father had compassion on him. The English word compassion comes from the Latin meaning to suffer with, uh, to share in suffering, which is exactly what the father is prepared to do, to share in the son's loss and grief and failure so that it can be restored. But the Greek word that Jesus uses is, is really a wonderful word. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I can't even hardly say it, it's splagnitsomai. <laughs> <laughs> you can drop that at your next dinner party. Splagnitsomai. It means from the guts, from the splanksna. <laughs> from the guts, the father is gutted for his boy. He should have chased him back where he came from. Everyone would have expected that. But instead he runs to him. He holds him. He restores him. He refuses to be without him because he knows that life, true life for either of them, demands a, a gut-level commitment which is in direct contrast to the older brother, right? He, he arrives as evidence that sin is not just about what we do. It's not even mostly about what we do. It's mostly an orientation. It's mostly selfishness. It's a failure to live in and for the relationships for which we are made with God, our true selves, each other, and creation. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is to do everything apparently right, because that opens up the illusion that we should get what we deserve. What becomes evident pretty quickly is that the older brother isn't really any more concerned for his father than his good-for-nothing younger brother is. If he really cared about the father, he'd know how gutted the old man was. He'd know what joy this dad is feeling that his son who was lost has been found. That the one who was dead is alive. The older son doesn't care about that. He, he cares about the fact that he's never had a party like this. <laughs> he's never, he's worked like a dog his whole life, all these years to, to hold everything together, to do what's expected. He's done everything right, and now he doesn't see the point. Why even bother? Maybe he should have blown his half of the inheritance too. Now, I was talking with a friend this week who's having a hard time with, with a church that he's attending, which, which happens. Uh, and he's been wrestling with some big questions. He, he, uh, you know, he, he's been wondering whether or not God is intent on saving everything, everyone, or just some of us, specifically Christians, and specifically those Christians who believe properly. These are big questions. I'm not going to try to answer them today, but they're big questions. And he talked to his, uh, one of his pastors, and, and, and the only answer that he was given was, What's the point of doing evangelism if everyone's saved? Like, why bother pointing people to Jesus or even doing what he says if it doesn't matter in the end? That was the answer to his question. And I, I think it's a heartbreaking answer. <laughs> not because evangelism is not important, but because it means that the only reason to point people to Jesus is to get something for ourselves. It's the only way it could matter. But there's a much more interesting, much more beautiful, much more life-giving reason to follow Jesus, to point people to Jesus, 
It's Jesus, <laughs> Jesus himself. It's to welcome people into the relationship for which they're made. It's to know the joy of the Father who wants to tackle us in a bear hug, to restore us and renew us, to clean the muck off us and put on the most luxurious robe, to put new shoes on aching feet, to bring us back into the household to, for which we are made, what is our true home. It's to share in that joy and that hope and that peace that is the foundation of the world. The point of following Jesus is not to cover our eternal bases. <laughs> It's not a bad fallout of it, but it's not the point. The point of following Jesus is to know Jesus. It's to join with the sinners and tax collectors to come near to him and hear him, to listen, because he has the words that are the words of life. His beauty is the beauty, that, the light that, that drives the fog of illusion away so that we can see clearly and live freely. You know, the problem for the older brother is that he couldn't delight in simply being with his dad, in the, the freedom of working with his dad, of enjoying the abundance of the farm, the pleasure of a time and place bound in relationship. Now, he thought he was working for something that apparently his father was prepared just to give away, which means that his work ended up in, in bitterness and not joy. And, and in his bitterness, he, he won't even recognize his brother. And maybe he can't anymore. He calls him this son of yours. <laughs> right? If we're hell-bent on, on earning what we get, spiritually or otherwise, we're, we're going to be really frustrated when the undeserving get it. And, and we're going to miss the opportunity to delight right now <laughs> in all that is already ours. You know, the father reminds his boy that his joy for him, his love for him, it, it is not less. It's never paused for a second. The father's joy and love for his children is not a zero-sum game. More for you doesn't mean less for me. You know, I think the moment of hope at the end is when the father reminds the older boy that the younger son is, whether he likes it or not, his brother. When the boy says, this son of yours, the father responds, this brother of yours. And in the end, I think, the invitation is what the invitation has always been, to share in the Father's joy, to marvel in the wonder that what was lost is found, what was dead is alive, to sing and dance with the angels, that that's the Father's dream for all things, even us. So may it be so.